0: Welcome to the Good Neighbours podcast. This is a series on the UK and its relations with the EU and European countries after Brexit. We look at the EU-UK relationship, consider how the relationship compares with the EU's relations with its other neighbours, and discuss the UK's new bilateral relations in Europe. I'm Hussain Kassim, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and Change in Europe.
1: And I'm Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate at UEA. Today we're looking at the Anglosphere, how it has influenced the UK's relationship with Europe and the UK's post-Brexit foreign policy and the extent to which it's a political programme. We're delighted to welcome three distinguished guests, Mike Kenny, Professor at Polis at the University of Cambridge and co-author of Shadows of Empire, the Anglosphere in British Politics. Leslie Vinjamuri is Reader in International Relations at SOAS, University of London, and Director of the US and the Americas Programme at Chatham House. And Serjan Vučetić is an Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and author of two books we'll be discussing today, The Anglosphere, Genealogy of a Racialized Identity*. Identity in International Relations, published by Stanford University Press in 2011, and Greatness and Decline, National Identity and British Foreign Policy, which appeared in 2021.
0: So thanks very much for joining us today to discuss the Anglosphere in the world post-Brexit. Uh, the Anglosphere has been used to explain how Britain or England sees itself in the world. It seems to have informed pro-Europeans and anti-Europeans, and we've heard a lot about it since the 2016 referendum. Could we begin by asking you what what you think is meant by the term? What, what is the Anglosphere as an idea or as a concept? What does it involve, and, and where does the idea come
2: from? I think the Anglosphere is it's obviously a fairly recent term, and it's one that was coined, I think, in the in the nineteen nineties. But it's it's a new term for what is really quite an old and and I think recurrent idea, uh, one that stretches back um, to the eighteen seventies, which is the idea of an alliance forged between a group of English-speaking countries which are said to share um, a number of defining common features. So what's usually emphasised that these are broadly liberal market economies, they're countries with a shared uh, history or focus of on the common law, they are mostly parliamentary democracies and, and all have a history of Protestantism, as, as well as being former British colonies, so the, the sort of core set of countries that, that are referenced through the term sphere are the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the US, so that has a, a more sort of problematic <laughs> position in relation to this, and I think in um, essentially what, what the idea does is enable uh, politicians particularly to appeal to a certain version of the past whilst also pointing towards an unrealized potential, some, some great uh, possibility and gain that might be achieved by bringing those countries into some kind of alliance. And I think one of the important things about the term the Anglosphere is a really interesting concept because it has as well as it references a history, a certain version of history, it's also got a futuristic aspect that points towards the achievement of some as yet untapped, unrealized goal in the present. Now, in specifically in British politics, the idea is mobilised across the last century and more for quite different political ends by political figures from both right and left. Um, And I think despite those differences, there are just one or two common threads that are worth emphasizing. Um, One is the notion of Britain, or Great Britain, reimagined as a maritime power, as a great naval power, and as a global island, which is connected with liberal market economies in other parts of the Anglophone world. And then more specifically, which is, I guess, the the sort of uh, context for this conversation, that this Anglosphere narrative gets reinvented, it gets reassembled in, I think, the 1990s and then in the 2000s um, by British thinkers and politicians, but in, in concert with actually a, a um, thinkers, commentators, media moguls from these different countries. And out of this, like, this becomes a really important crucible. For a new kind of euro scepticism, for a new source of objection to the UK's membership of the European Union, and that becomes one of the currents that feeds into the politics of the referendum and of Brexit and its aftermath.
0: So, Dan, your view of the Anglo
3: seems to be slightly different from, from from your book. How would you how would you describe it? Uh, so, you're right. My emphasis is slightly different, but that's simply because I come uh, to the Anglosphere sphere. Uh, from international relations theory. I wrote a dissertation on it. And it was about the so-called Anglo-American hegemonic transition. And this helped me locate uh, the Anglo Sphere concept in the 19th century, at the time when the US and the British Empire were simultaneously rivals and partners in what today we would call the age of strategic uh, competition. So it was by reading this history that I came across ideas such as Greater Britain, Imperial Federation, Imperial Defense, and such. Uh, turns out. They were very popular with a number of late Victorian and wardian political visionaries, uh, mostly conservatives and liberals, but some socialists as well. Uh, so these models were contradictory, uh, very interesting. Uh, they had several beliefs in common, uh, much like uh, Michael uh, explained earlier. Uh, one of them I think was very important. It uh, was the idea that closer relations followed from shared language, history, and culture. But culture at that time was synonymous with, with race, as in the English-speaking race, and the Anglo-Saxon race. And the last believe, belief was crucial because racial distinctiveness and superiority was widely understood uh, as, a, as a necessary foundation for new political and economic institution. It was this racial logic that led some of, some of the proponents at the time to call for reversing the so-called rupture caused by the American War of Independence, a.k.a. the War of American Secession, and reunite Britain and the U.S. into a single polity. The key point here for the the kind of race uh, piece is that uh, these ideas, this is 19th century, but also going into the 20th century, were part of a transnational effort uh, to secure and stabilize uh, white rule globally. And I say white, quote unquote. uh, One practical manifestation of this effort was the erection of racialized immigration controls uh, that lasted in some cases until 1971. We'll, we'll return to some of those subjects in a moment but but
0: Leslie I just wondered what um what resonance um the term angli had in the had in the u.s
4: well I think uh, Michael alluded um to the fact that it's clearly a, a very complicated certainly present history of the, the term um I, I think if you you know look at contemporary U.S politics uh, you know we're, we're in a country that um will be a majority-minority country from 2050. Inevitably, if you if you say Anglosphere, people um, ascribe to that something that is very racialized, that is about a certain set of values, but values that come out of certain um, domination by white Americans who historically have, you know, occupied all of the elite institutions across the entire country. And in the current context, of course, in a, in a country that is not only mired in culture wars across any number of dimensions, but is but is also deeply polarized. I think the notion of the Anglosphere just becomes um, deeply political. That in some ways is, you know, very obvious as much as it's very important. But the slightly the slightly unsettling international dimension to that is that I think there is a real determination to hold on to values, certainly by the current administration, um, which both embraces Black Lives Matter, diversity, cultural heterogeneity at home, but but embraces a values agenda in its global policy and its international affairs that some people will ascribe as being, you know, essentially about an Anglosphere, a set of values that, uh, it, that in some ways are, are not just neutral, but that are projecting um, a certain or smuggling in a certain kind of racial politics uh into an, an international system that, that is increasingly divided between china um and the us and, and asking others to line up
3: yeah
0: you know, um well very very interesting well i mean i just wonder if you could say um well, all three of you really about how The notion of the Anglo sphere relates to the Commonwealth because the Commonwealth is multicultural, multiracial, and many um, in, in current debates, many people who see themselves as supporter supporters of the Commonwealth also. Um, warfare supporters of Brexit and of Leave. How, how do the how do the two concepts
2: interact? What are the relationships? I think the um, I mean it, it is a very interesting relationship that I think. So just in in historical terms to think about that relationship. I mean on on the one hand you've got um, a strand of British political thinking, particularly in the Conservative Party, which is, which identifies very strongly with what's called the Old Commonwealth. And the the Old Commonwealth is is effectively a a, a sort of synonym for for um, these core countries of the Anglosphere, as it comes to be called. But then of course the Commonwealth attracts a whole bunch of different political interpretations and readings and, and you have other figures in British politics in the Conservative Party, but particularly in Labour, who begin to engage with the Commonwealth because it presents uh, an alternative a model of racial politics and ideas about racial equality become associated with it. And some in some cases, I think that vision of the Commonwealth does spill over into a sense of, of particular connection with um. With the former dominions, I mean that they, they occupy a particularly strong position within the Commonwealth. But I think in other respects it actually broadens the, if you like, the, the range of countries and I and I think of um and of normative political ideas and of orientations that come into British politics. So the the the, the Anglesby, to an extent, I mean, there isn't, it's it's interesting that between Churchill's emphasis on the union of the English-speaking peoples, as he calls them, and updating the language of the period that Surgeon's talking about, then there is a gap, in a way, between that period and then, I think, the end of the Cold War in the 1990s, when you begin to see this particular focus that returns. And I think that gap is explained mainly by the focus, the
3: ambiguous focus on the Commonwealth contemporary supporters of the Anglers would say, well, Commonwealth is its own thing. What we're advocating today is something completely different. Uh, We're looking at the fact that our citizens uh, enjoy roughly similar per capita GDP and and various other uh, indicators. Uh, And that's just not true with respect to the other Commonwealth nations uh, who happen to have similar constitutions and whatnot the hurdles uh, in integrating into this new Anglosphere, whatever, union, uh, are lower in the case of the so-called old uh, Commonwealth. Uh, the problem with that argument is that that's not how history works. Yes, prima facie, you're right. That what you're advocating is something new. That's why you came up with a new name, the Anglosphere. But Everyone, as as Leslie explained, everyone has a, you know, a different resonance, especially in the current political moment, which is defined by various hegemonic contestations, to use another kind of uh, big term, uh, one of which is that between rival political and ideological positions across Western democracies.
4: Maybe I could pick up uh, on the last thing that Surgeon said. And it, it's, I guess, for me, you know, one of the curiosities is really the, the term that's getting used more as the West. And there is there is a question of, you know, what is the difference between the West and the Anglosphere? Um, or are they, you know, is the West just, it, perhaps the West is something that you can actually join. And, um, and the Anglosphere is something that is limited because it is racialized. Uh, it's, you know, ostensibly about language. Uh, Michael um, described it as being about perhaps a number of additional factors but i still think that w- when you say the anglosphere to many people including people like myself mixed race americans whose you know parents came from other countries in part um, it one assumes that you know the west is something you can aspire to be part of it's obviously deeply contested and the anglosphere Perhaps as a country, as a nation, but but not as a as an individual or a cultural community. So it's very, it's you know, again, the, I, I guess I would go back to international overlay of these concepts is very, very different from what how they manifest in a domestic context, where it's inevitably about cultural groupings uh, and deeply contested uh, values and hierarchies.
2: Just to pick up that, this point about about the West, I think it's really important, actually, as a as one of the <laughs> You know what are the, the, the shifting contexts in which um, in which ideas of the anglosphere are projected. I mean, I, I think it it is it is no accident as well that that these the sort of ideas that we're talking about here become prominent again um, after the Cold War, and because the period of the Cold War. Uh, 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 enables the projection of under sort of dominant understandings of the West, which very much occlude or marginalize, I think, these kind of claims to political community around the idea of this particular bunch of English speaking countries. I mean, it may be that there are relations between them and senses of connections between them are, are exist in that period, of course. But I think the, the, the heightened notion of the West, which is projected against the communist threat is a very important sort of blockage, if you like, upon upon this uh, idea, which is then, of course, begins to disappear. It begins to dissipate when when the idea of the West, the boundaries around the West, and and the conception of what the West is, begins to become very contested in the wake of the end of the Cold War. And also, you have the rise of China, and you have the emergence of the perceived Islamic. Terrorist threat and in security terms, and I think that whole conjuncture, um, which really marks the breakup of the of the of the conception of the West in the Cold War, is a really important sort of crucible in which these ideas sort of come back, as it were, in in new form.
0: One 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 point that occurs to me as well is that the notion of the West doesn't necessarily cast the UK in a central role or England in a central role. It's it's um, you know there's an yeah, acceptance of, of US leadership, at best, a sort of special special relationship. Um, but uh, do I understand you correctly, you're suggesting that, that, you know, the West is a is a, um, a term that, that supplants or supersedes the Anglosphere, that can't exist in the same space as the Anglosphere?
2: I don't think they're necessarily uh, entirely incompatible, but I think, um, I think it's the particular... Way in which the West is drawn, and particularly the role of the US within that the, within that understanding of the West, which which just creates sort of particular kinds of strategic challenge for the for the UK. And this thing, just to put put it in the UK context, which is you know so notions of the special relationship are are much more to the fore because then you know the choice becomes well do we how do we become you know retain. Our, ascendant, our position of preeminence, well, we've got to ride on the coattails of the US. There isn't a lot of alternative. But of course, then the European question comes alive as well. And that, that sort of cuts across awkwardly because that's primarily about the economy and the, and the perception of, of decline in the UK economy and the question of, is this really a future? Is this the bus we've got to get on? We don't want to. We're reluctant to. We've got to get on it because holding to the older model which is the Commonwealth, those going back to those visions of um, imperial preference and so on that the surgeons talk, was talking about they just don't look as if they're working for the UK economy so so I don't think the west obliterates everything but I think it creates a particular context and set of challenges for the UK
1: I wonder how did the idea of Anglosphere affect how UK politicians and the public viewed Britain's relationship with europe the European community and the European Union? Was UK membership of the community even compatible with the notion of the Anglosphere? We've been touching upon this uh, now, so I don't know if one of you would like to elaborate on that.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you, you know, look, one thing I'd say about the, these ideas, there's, there's a sort of fluidity and a suppleness to um, some of the, these forms of thinking, which mean that, that they can be made, you know, they can be made incompatible, they can be mobilised against projects like membership of the European Union but there are also clearly at the individual level there are people who feel a sense of loyalty to quite strongly to the Commonwealth or or indeed to the Anglosphere who are also except for pragmatic reasons that the UK should stay in the EU so you know you do you do find both of those uh, options as it were particularly in the British Conservative Party but but I think what what's really striking and important about the Anglosphere as a notion particularly as it's Sort of invented or reinvented in the 1990s and into the 2000s, is that I think it really feeds off a wider perception in in British political and and indeed uh, elite economic circles that actually the problem, one of the problems the UK has is that it's saddled itself with a wider European system, which is effectively um, uh, both bureaucratically sclerotic. You know which is um, and which is also particularly economically increasingly stagnant, and the there's an increasing interest at that moment in what's happening in Asia, particularly the sense that that there are certain uh, you know new forms of economic dynamism associated with some East Asian economies. And there's also an increasing sense of frustration at some of the policies that begin to be uh, pursued within the EU context and and the the growing concerns about about the emergence of a more political uh, union, that this is moving beyond um, its origins as a trading bloc. And I think what's really interesting is that the Anglosphere provides this really quite... um, sweeping historical and potentially exciting alternative mission for the UK to follow. It provides a a different sort of historical axis, a different way of understanding where the UK can be, how it should align itself, both in geopolitical terms and economic terms. And then the other crucial condition that I think enables the Anglosphere to become a source, one of the sources of Euroscepticism, is technology. It is it is really important that this is the era of, the sort of digital transformation and you see a, a, a really interesting repeat of the debates that that surgeon knows all too well about, you know how technological transformations in the 19th century were a precondition for imagining a different sort of relationship, a closer economic relationship between Britain. And the former dominions because you know, it was hoped or assumed that technology would allow the constraints of geography to be transcended and you get exactly the same kind of discourse around the digital economy uh
3: thanks much to agree here uh with mike uh once again uh i would just say that there are multiple angles here, is at the level of ideas and ideology um so we have Uh, proposals that since the 19th century have included all of the British Empire. You can also think of it as a social and transnational phenomenon whereby you have Irish Anglosphere, South Asian Anglosphere, left wing Anglosphere. It really is a multiplicity of ideas.
4: I think uh, I I think. It, it, perhaps it's just another one of those examples where the US really is quite exceptional, but to, to, I guess just to comment on the, the, brec- the Brexit question, um, I think there's, there was so much uh, cynicism and skepticism in the United States about the Brexit project, in large part because it, it was so caught up in America's and Americans' commitment and, and feeling, deep feeling about the Irish. And about ireland and so the you know the notion that the anglosphere could could have been seen to be something that demonstrated or indicated a sort of broadening (laughs) a a broader engagement by britain in a very positive way i think that you know on the specific question of brexit it it just wasn't seen that way so if if you start to talk about you know the kind of liberal america uh, again the Brexit and the Anglosphere just it it didn't really take on these broader meanings that I that I think you know we've heard perhaps resonated more with certain people's across Canada and and across the Commonwealth and, and the UK
2: yeah, just one distinction I I I I would I suggest we put into this is between elites and the sort of popular level. I don't want to be too simplistic about this, but for the most part, we're talking really at broadly an elite level. It's it's at that kind of level, not just in the political world, but also sometimes in the financial world, in the media world, that you get the excitement in these ideas and the, and the, and the sort of deeper interest. And it's, it is striking, because we've gone to talk about Brexit, that in the actual campaign, the, the people, you know, at the sharp end of delivering that campaign, the Vote Leave group, really back away from these kind of ideas. You don't see very much at all, if anything, really about the Anglosphere. Um, you see a little bit about the Commonwealth, but not much. It's a much more, uh, but, but you know, it's, it's an interesting Judgement that's made that the kind of the block of electors that they want to bring together, they don't think for the most part they're going to be mobilised by these ideas.
0: Mike, in your in your book, you, you you know you you sort of you know you name names, you identify different institutes, particular politicians who are who are you know, who are meeting um, you know, transatlantic in particular is very important. There is an Australian and a Canadian dimension at some point point in, in particular periods. From what you've just said, it doesn't suggest that this is such a sort of cultural project. It's much more of, you know, it's a cultural project that's carrying some other kind of agenda. Then, is it, you know, a deregulatory agenda? What, you know, what is it that that is being, you know, maybe concealed then by this? rather the strategic use of the notion of, of commonwealth or and or, or the silence about Anglos
2: in, in the Leave campaign. Well, I think I think there are two there are two things to think about here. I mean, one is. You know, there, there is a what we talk about in the book is, is really one of the lines of the one of the multiplicities, if you like, where you see a very particular interpretation of, of the Anglosphere mission, which is um, essentially, I mean, in the British context, certainly is, is, is promoting Uh, a free market agenda, is interested in deregulation, privatisation, is very much in the shadow of of Thatcher, of of Margaret Thatcher and the the complex legacy that she leaves within Conservative politics. So I think partly it's a way of carrying that torch forward and and indeed interpreting what the legacy should be. But I I also think it is striking that 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 comes out of what is a, a sort of international community of people who are interested in ideas about technology. I think what's so interesting about this is that the Anglosphere appeals because it allows you to root those kind of arguments in a cultural discourse. I mean, you know, the validity of which is open to question, and so on, but I mean, I think that's part of what's going on. That's one thing. But then there is a second thing, which maybe needs to be referenced here as well, which is almost the Anglosphere as a, as a concept that allows you to think about something that's less consciously reflected on. And that is the way in which amongst the different elites of these countries, and I'd include the US in this as well, you do see almost a kind of lived experience of connection and of a degree of intimacy and forms of trust and feelings of connection. Sometimes it's where people are educated and the networks and circles they move in, which means that you get these very striking things like like a lot of uh, almost semi-conscious policy transfer, Goes on between these countries in a in a much less formalized way. You just get a lot of people moving for their moving literally between these different countries, being educated at, at different elite institutions, and you get a lot of politicians of left as well as right who are just inclined to learn from and talk to and engage with their 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 elites in these other contexts. So I. I think that's an aspect of this as well, which is really very different. You know, that's a kind of different thing to this very more conscious ideological project, which which we were discussing. You yeah,
0: many interpretations of the Brexit vote um, see the um, sort of Brexiters, see leavers as as of you know Powell as Powellites. And of course Powell was, you know, certainly later in his life um, you know, very much opposed to the well, the Anglo well, the special relationship and the idea of the empire and and and, and even the Anglo So how 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 could we reconcile that reading of of um that you know philosophy or approach with with what you said about
2: the Anglo let, let me go first on that one. I mean, it's so so you know, one of the questions, probably the most commonly asked question to, to Nick and uh, me when we after we wrote that book is why have you got Enoch Powell in there because it, as you exactly as you say in many ways he was determinedly against some of the things that 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 you know we might associate with this expansive idea of the of the Union of the English-speaking peoples and was obviously famously uh, against empire or the notion that empire was was a core part of the sort of English political identity I mean we we, we included him I mean you know and there was some debate between us about this, but I think in the end, we just see him as almost a, tri- a tributary within this, the, this sort of broad stream of thinking. Now, it's interesting to go back to the Brexit point. I mean, arguably, parts of the Vote Leave campaign were closer to Powell's politics. It, it was that aspect of, of this tradition that, that were mobilised. And very much, you know, very much in opposition to the to the kind of liberal free market sort of global vision, global Britain idea that is also there within the, the sort of Brexiteer identity. So you've got these, these conflicting impulses. And I, I just think Powell is such an important. Um, figure in this because he, in a way, he shows, he points to the the popularity of a politics that rejects some of this, but he also, I think, carries forward many of the terms of trade and the ways of thinking about nation and particularly of the the English nation, which again, reach back to this period of Greater Britain and the, the, the Victorian era, which Surgeon's written about.
3: Once again, a lot to agree. Uh, In fact, most of my knowledge on Powell and Powellism comes from uh, Mike and and Nick's book. I think chapter four, is it, or something? Uh, I should also mention uh, Camilla Schofield's work, as well as Andrew Gamble's work. So I think Powell is absolutely crucial here uh, for the reasons uh, Mike uh, outlines Uh, his critique of British foreign policy was always a double critique against the idea of global leadership, whether through the commonwealth or the commonwealth, or sorry, the common market or the Anglosphere. Whatever it is, whatever the means is for global leadership, he did not like it. And and second, he was also against this 19th century idea of free trading little uh, Englandism, uh, and we mentioned earlier the debate between free traders, so-called free traders and imperial federationists. Well, he did not like this idea of free trading Little England either. Uh, so it's best, he's best remembered for the rivers of blood speech and whatnot, but there's so much more there that now has all sorts of very interesting resonances in this current political moment. Uh, and and it doesn't really align with the right necessarily. I mean, you, some of these arguments, uh, we are worried about the loss of national sovereignty, uh, to foreigners bewitched by supranationalism. But that's Lexit, too. These are Lexiteers saying some of the same things. Uh, and, and that matters uh, for understanding how the Anglosphere relates to Brexit, I would say. Um, and, and Michael's also right to say that, yes, uh, the Anglosphere is very much an elite idea that's being pushed onto uh, various uh, attempts at political mobilization. Uh, but I would say the dominant uh, kind of group uh, or, or political force uh, that has embraced the Anglosphere as an idea and ideology are free market capitalists who believe in the technological breakthroughs, who believe that, uh, you know, that there could be uh, some kind of revival of Britain uh, after Brexit. Uh, some of them are also uh, believing in a Britain that's firmly anchored uh, in, uh, in tradition, more traditional sources of authority, right? So this Britain is simultaneously small, and global, uh, a member of Kansu Kangosphere, Commonwealth, whatever, uh, as well as Singaporean themes, uh, some kind of fantasy land in a fantasy world where uh, money and goods can travel freely, but not necessarily people and viruses, uh, where humans, uh, human rights uh, sort of give, give, give way to citizenship rights and, and, and various legal contractual obligations
4: when we talk about brexit and and i guess how does that play out in the us and what role does the anglo sphere play at least at the elite level if you think at if you think about those who supported um, brexit in the us the re- another reason why it gets very complicated i think in the us context is it's really not about internationalism right there's the the, the part of the us political establishment that supports brexit is deeply nationalist and deeply nationalistic and they're either about restraining the use of America's power um, and its projection beyond its borders to very limited set of interests, or it's about a kind of engagement that certainly doesn't look to any other power, and that would uh, include Britain. So the Anglosphere, I think, even you know, for that sort of radical right wing of the Republican Party and, and, the, in, and the, the think tanks that are part of that less radicalized, but still part of that are, you know that are, are are just ultimately, I would argue, too nationalistic to really take on board in a serious way the anglosphere idea. And in, in some ways, you know, the, the great contradiction is that the anglosphere idea would have come more out of the sort of moderate, small, democratic liberals. But it just becomes so deeply problematic in the context of Black Lives Matter and the cultural diversity agenda.
2: I think it's really important to see here that, that, that there are kind of asymmetries here so from from a on the cultural point you know the kind of if you like the the lived experience of of this to the extent that this cultural thing is meaningful i mean and i mean I completely take your point that, that you can't bracket out these crucial questions of you know political in, national interest political strategy and wider geopolitical context but i i think What is interesting is that 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 cultural sense of connection is much more important from the UK side than it is from the US side. And um, I think to link to those other, those wider points, you know, for for the UK elite, particularly as we get towards the, towards the 1980s and then the end of the Cold War and then the, the kind of period of the new kind of small L, you know, the new centrism that emerges, it's just incredibly important to the UK elite, to have those connections into what's going on in the US, partly to feel validated, but also as a source of ideas of affirmation. I mean, Clinton's influence on the Blair project is huge, and that there's something other than Europe. That's the point for the UK elite, that there's something outside that you balance with these the growing European um, position. And my final point is, in the context of Biden, I mean, the Ireland becomes a Ireland becomes the kind of portal through which the US is looking at the UK's very problematic relationship with the EU. And you know what is interesting is the fact that that hasn't that's that's a big thing for the UK government under Johnson and under his successor, but it is no longer the
3: overriding consideration.
2: And I think that's a really interesting moment of reorientation in UK uh, statecraft.
3: This gets at the core of what I earlier was talking about when I mentioned hegemonic contestations that define our our world today. Uh, I I think we should be careful. I mean, going back to Mike's second point, uh, Breitbart News, uh, a lot of angles here, content in Breitbart News and and kind of adjacent uh, media. Uh, I I think this is key. Uh, We had in 2021, I'm thinking, uh, I guess, May, April. Uh, So this is the BLM, uh, post-BLM moment. And the Republican response to that uh, was this bizarre America First Caucus, uh, a group of pro-Trump representatives. So I'm thinking about Representative uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, from Georgia. So she's a far-right conspiracy theorist, plus businesswoman, plus all these other things. So they they tried to create uh, uh, this caucus that would define America in a platform, whose platform defined America as a nation with a border, a culture strengthened by common respect for uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions. So this is almost the verbatim quote uh, from the platform. And uh, we have to put this, I think, in the context of uh, various recent de- de- developments at both federal and state level in U.S. politics, whereby we see countless pieces of legislation being mobilized towards restricting all, all sorts of human rights, voting rights, women's rights, enforce, muffling free free speech. Uh, and, and essentially for GOP officials and supporters, all of these things are being labeled as excesses of liberalism or managerial liberalism. So this is a huge contestation here that's going on, not just in the United States, it's a transnational phenomenon. I'm sure you talked about this uh, at your podcast uh, in specifically American label for this type of politics uh, is culture wars, uh, popularized 30 years ago uh, in the eponymous uh, book written by the sociologist, uh, James Davison Hunter. It refers to not simply uh, a political struggle over cultural issues, which is something Mike talked about earlier, but more importantly, uh, a certain Gramscian awareness of the role cultural institutions uh, play in politics. And Hunter, the sociologist, is not necessarily Gramscian, but he does talk about Gramsci in his book, uh, which was set in a completely different political moment and, and, and political context. But in, in, for today's moment, uh, culture is more explicitly focused on race and racial issues. And not just in the United States, I have to say. Uh, and and I, I think Hunter says this in one of his interviews somewhere um uh, against the backdrop of america's hyperpolarization uh we have obviously the, the react- republican or kind of uh, right wing reaction to uh the blm uh movement which in some ways is a global uh movement as well uh and 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 for for, for this analysis uh, you would say that uh culture wars are intensified across the world. The US stands out only because of its well-funded interest groups and not because of some kind of exceptionality. I mean, this is contentious, I'm just throwing it out there, Uh, but it does map out on some kind of, as he puts it, class culture conflict, uh, which I guess is a good Gramscian phrase to describe what is going on uh, today. And I would, uh, to plug in some of the current work that I'm uh, engaged in, uh there's a twist to it uh we can push this analysis further and say that uh, the digital revolution so think facebook brightback news twitter whatever uh, you uh, you're using if you are if you are some kind of political entrepreneur on the right uh you become skilled at exploiting uh these anxieties and resentments of the of of, of, of the let's say you know the the popular voter uh to in in ways that are would be, I think, recognizable uh, to uh, to to you know people at the beginning of the 20th century, um, and so what's interesting to me uh, personally, as well as some of my colleagues, is that it is the right, not the left, uh, that succeeded in appropriating some of these ideas associated with Gramsci and and the Italian Marxist thought uh, circa circa you know 1920s, uh, and and what we're seeing today is. Uh, yeah, I mean, you get an intensifying struggle between rival ideological positions uh, in the U.S., but elsewhere uh, as well, uh, in liberal democracies. And that's just one struggle. And the other struggle is the actual uh, strategic competition between the so-called U.S.-led West uh, and and China and Russia, on the other hand. And they, too, are very much plugged in in these culture wars. Uh, really, really fascinating. Do you see... Um
0: global Britain and um, UK foreign policy as, as informed by or shaped by um, the Anglosphere? I mean, I'm thinking about things like, you know, Five Eyes Intelligence Corporation, um, AUKUS, but also um, the Defence Review. Are these, are these shaped by this um, conception?
2: I mean, I think the, Ang- the Anglosphere has undoubtedly fed into, um, it's one of the sources that feeds into the this sort of very elusive uh, idea of global Britain, which has become a kind of, you know, meta theme, meta concept floating above Brexit, but which is um, attractive because it's, it can mean so many different things to, to different people. And there's undoubtedly an Anglosphere version of that, which does, um, is there somewhere in, in, in shaping the, the kind of in instincts of politicians, some of the ministers who've, who've just immediately sort of moved out to try and strike trade deals with other countries in, in the context of Brexit. But but it's only one of the elements there. I think what's important about, the reason Global Britain is such an important theme in all of this is because it's a way of, partly again, it goes back to the idea of framing Brexit as a project that feels exciting, that feels liberating, that has a has a certain kind of future, dynamic future, as well as a, being anchored in the past. Um, it also is important to say. I think it's a way of countering the accusations of that this is a little England the project or a kind of narrow nationalism, and I think that's important. Actually, that's that's very much been the kind of prevailing sort of way of thinking about this in in the Johnson government, though offset by, you know, Johnson himself was interested in uh, something that would be more recognizably, I guess, Chamberlainite in the way in which he focused on social reform and active state. So you've got these different elements, but I think global Britain is a really important focus. And I think if Liz Truss wins the leadership contest, which looks like she will, we'll, we'll certainly hear more of that kind of focus. And I think we'll have less Chamberlain and, you know, much more kind of free trade
4: Britain and I would, I guess I would add uh, that, you know, the the global Britain, to me, the global Britain project doesn't really strike me as being about the Anglosphere. And I, and I'd add, you know, another reason, which is that global Britain, regardless of what it's turned out to be is in, it's by intent designed to set out, you know, a in, independent, as Michael said, but also, you know, very powerful country. Um, and the Anglosphere necessarily means that Britain can't be the most powerful country because it's sitting across the Atlantic from the United States. The tilt to the Indo-Pacific is clearly an effort, you know, to be seen to have a global role, to project Britain's power into the most dynamic, most competitive, most significant and consequential part of the globe when it comes to national security and strategic matters.
2: I think what the Anglosphere does, what that idea does is is it it's a way of saying that um, Britain's story is also part of the stories of these other particular countries. So, in other words, it, it sort of—it's not the Anglosphere as a constraint; is it's only these countries we care about. But it's when Britain is trying to reassert itself in, you know, as a, as a player within the Indo-Pacific region, for instance, it, it's doing so in this imagined special form of connection with other countries, including perhaps even in the US. Now. That may be somewhat desperate. It might even feel needy, but, but it, it, it is, I think it's a way of telling the story to the world about what, what is special and unique about the UK, as well as telling that to ourselves. So I think the two things are very integrated, actually. They're not opposites.
3: I would jump in and, and say, I agree. Uh, it's imagined, but not imaginary. At one, on the one hand, you have a whole bunch of institutional networks uh, in this domain of security writ large. Uh, There's all sorts of, uh, if we're looking at the the dyads and triads within this five country space, we see no shortage of various security arrangements. Uh, What's interesting about them is that some of them are pretty thin uh, in the sense of, I guess, international law. These are formal arrangements, but not national treaties. If you look at the the treaty that binds together the Five Eyes, the world's most powerful intelligence uh, partnership, uh, it's non-binding it's open to abolition uh, but yet it is that which provides a lot of ammunition for people who are saying oh well we've co- cooperated in security for 75 plus years we might as well do all these other things together right uh, in, in fact it, it's much easier to do free trade and uh, labor movement than 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 to Uh, cooperate and collaborate in an area that states are supposed supposed to jealously guard, which is uh, national security. Uh, And and that's not, it's just intelligence and that you have it across uh, security and defense domains. As for these stronger um, attempts to create uh, or effectuate something called the Anglosphere, that won't work because it did not work at the height of imperial power. It won't work now. When, <laughs> when you have you know hyperpolarized huge United States uh, dealing with also hyperpolarized uh, other countries that are set to form uh, the 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 core of the Anglosphere. and and on, on on the sort of flip side of all this are are,
0: um, are there parties or or or, or groupings in or other kind of interests in um, in Washington D.C. or um, Canberra or or Ottawa thinking great the UK is now free of the EU we can we can undertake that we can pursue this project?
3: I mean, the, these, I think, apart from the Conservative Party of Canada, circa 2018, these are usually fringe actors who who show any kind of uh, support for uh, anglospheric ideas. So I, I think in, in New Zealand, for example, the person who's been most excited about this stuff is David Breen Seymour, uh, who's uh, a politician and member of the parliament and leader of, of ACT New Zealand. Party. And he's a very interesting case of, you know, someone of a Maori, of Maori descent who's interested in Anglosphere collaboration and cooperation. Um, but very much an island I and mean, there's not much, you know, institutional support be, behind this. Australia is a similar case. I could name a few politicians who are very excited about Anglosphere cooperation. But again, not there is not much there there. Um, in Canada, as I mentioned, we had it for a while, but those who are leaders who are no longer leaders of the Conservative Party, Andrew Shear and, and, and Aaron O'Toole. Uh, the, the person who's coming in now is more of a, uh, let's say he's, he's more of a populist, quote unquote, uh, as all sorts of ideas that are not necessarily uh, related or in harmony with, uh, with the, the current uh, idea of the Anglosphere. And in uh, the UK, it really depends who the new prime minister uh, is going to be, and also who new, who the new chancellor will be, and and, and, and uh, foreign secretary. I mean, there there's there's uh, the politics is a little bit in flux, the way I see it uh, from over here. But again, uh, you 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 are you, all you, all you there are the experts <laughs> on, the, on the UK.
2: Yeah, just a, a footnote to um, Surgeon's point, which I think it is a very good one because I I think that. There's something about, I mean, I, as you can tell, you know, I looked at this mainly from the UK perspective, but I, when we looked at it, we were trying to sort of watch what was going on in these other countries politically to see, you know, were there other actors who were who were talking in these terms? And, you know, were, were there sort of echoes back for British politicians? And I, I do think it was really important the period, gosh, when would it be sort of the 2010s, which is when people like Boris Johnson Go a lot to Australia. It was sort of the coalition government that period. It wasn't just Johnson. I mean, a, a whole bunch of British Conservative politicians. I mean, William Hague was always on the plane to Australia. It seemed, and and the other, the other, and that was partly because of what was being echoed back at that time in the politics of Australia. I do think Stephen Harper was really important, actually, for a number of these people. Now, partly, and this goes to my point, I suppose, about the lived experience of this, it, it isn't always articulated as the Anglosphere. It isn't always that the political actors use that terminology. I mean, Harper did a bit, but he wasn't a sort of full-throated Anglosphereist. But the project, the way in which he approached politics, this sort of, I mean, broadly put, you know, sort of there was a populist aspect to this, the way he, in which he took on um, liberal institutions within Canada and civil society and so on. I mean, that was really important i think for a number of, of conservative political actors here so there's something about the exchange of ideas and influences and examples amongst a, a community of politicians some of whom would have used this language some of whom may may not so much but i think i think that actually can has bolstered or did at that particular moment bolster the the sort of idea that there was a sort of radical alternative that the British Conservative Party might be might pursue and that there are other examples from which to draw in developing this, this distinctive alternative politics.
0: Mike in Cambridge, Leslie in New York, Secretary in Ottawa, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Good Neighbours.